Our second reading this morning is from Mark chapter 13, verses 24 to 37. But in those days, following that distress, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, people will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory, and he will send his angels and gather his elect from the four winds from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heavens. Now learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. Even so, when you see these things happening, you know that it is near, right at the door. Truly, I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away but my words will never pass away. But about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, be alert. You do not know when that time will come. It's like a man going away. He leaves his house and puts his servants in charge, each with their assigned task, and tells the one at the door to keep watch. Therefore, Keep watch, because you do not know when the owner of the house will come back, whether in the evening, or at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or at dawn. If he comes suddenly, do not let him find you sleeping. What I say to you, I say to everyone, watch. It's always good to have your Bible open uh, as we look at a passage, but perhaps today, more than most, it would be really helpful to have a Bible open. Uh, I'll put key verses up on the screen if that's also helpful. Um, but let me pray as we get into our passage. Dear Lord, as we reflect on your word now, may these words of my mouth and this meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight. Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. It's been a while since I did my HSC. Uh, I suspect a little while longer for others. And probably the only specific detail I remember was a question in general studies. And it was, is ignorance bliss? And the more I thought about this question, the more I flip-flopped on the answer, which is really not helpful when you're in an exam But no one wants bad news, but once we know bad news is out there, then we want to hear it, Uh, even if we are powerless to change our situation, because even in hearing and knowing, we restore at least some sense of control. Uh, Perhaps we feel it most intensely when or if you're diagnosed with a serious illness, We can't necessarily change the prognosis, but at very least we can prepare, and even if that preparing is simply limited to putting our house in order. As we read about Jesus coming to Jerusalem, we know how it's going to end. And not simply because someone told us the ending, but because Jesus has told us the ending. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. It's tragic news, but it's good news for us. 
This is how God had always planned to deal with the brokenness of our world and the sinfulness of humanity. On the cross, Jesus will be our once-for-all sacrifice. He's suffering the consequences of our sin so that we might be saved. Saved from God's judgment, but also saved into a wonderful inheritance. God is establishing his kingdom in the present, and we look forward to a time when he will perfect that kingdom. But between Jesus going to the cross and Jesus coming again, there are going to be very hard times and Jesus wants his disciples to be prepared. And so today I want to look at this passage by answering three questions. What will happen? Uh, The more difficult question, when will this happen? And then how should the disciples live? And interwoven into that is a supplementary question, uh, how should we live? So our passage begins with the disciples admiring the the beauty and the grandeur of the temple in Jerusalem. Here is a structure worthy of the glory of God. And there's this sense that the temple, like God, will stand forever, except that it won't. Verse 2, not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. That's a shocking declaration. In fact, it was probably so shocking for the disciples that they didn't quite know what to say in the moment. But a little bit later, they've left Jerusalem, they've walked across the valley to the Mount of Olives, and from there it overlooks the city and it overlooks the temple. Uh, These days, if you were sitting on the Mount of Olives, it would look something like this. And so that big sort of foundation in the foreground... That is the the temple foundation uh, that's still standing. Uh, These days, the the structure you see is called the Dome of the Rock. Uh, It's a mosque, and it's been there since 692 AD. So it's one of the oldest Muslim structures in the world. But as the disciples look out over the temple, and as they sit there with Jesus, they, they pick up what Jesus said earlier. Tell us when these things will happen. And what will be the sign that they're all about to be fulfilled? And what Jesus describes is terrifying. Uh, To pick up some of the highlights, verse 8. Nation will rise up against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places and famines. More personally, brother will betray brother to death. A father, his child, children will rebel against their parents and will have them put to death. Everyone will hate you because of me. And just to emphasise again the full weight of what's to come, those will be days of distress unequalled from the beginning when God created the world until now and never be equalled again. Now, I can't imagine what it would be like to live today in a war zone with that constant fear that you just never know when a missile is going to land and kill you and your whole family. Or that constant dread of what happens when tanks roll in and and soldiers roll into the city with no rules, no accountability, no one left to protect you. That's the sense of distress and fearful anticipation that we get in what Jesus is describing here. 
So Jesus is describing what will happen, but amongst it is also the answer to the question, when will it happen? And the answer might have been clear to the disciples, but it's not so clear for us. And Chris, the world, have really struggled with this passage and view it through, a, through very different lenses. Uh, for some, uh, they think Jesus is describing events connected with the end of the world. So they read Jesus as saying, sometime in the future there's going to be a great tribulation, and then connected to that... Jesus will come again. And so we read in verse 26, people will see coming in clouds with great... Verse 8, these are the beginnings of birth pains. So whatever has been described here is the start, not the end. And then after this tribulation, God will bring everything under his perfect authority. But it will be somewhere in the future following that distress... And at that time, people will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. So let me see if I can try and put this together with a few pictures. So in the context of Mark, uh, we're in about 30 AD, and we're two days away from Jesus being arrested and crucified. In 70 AD, as predicted the temple will be destroyed by the Romans. So Israel were already a province under Roman rule. But in 66 AD, there was a Jewish uprising and they defeated the Roman small feet. But it was because the Romans were never going to take that defeat lying down. And then a few years later, 70 AD, they exact their revenge. Uh, The Romans return, they retake Jerusalem, they completely destroy the temple. Uh, One of the more mysterious predictions is verse 14. When you see the abomination that causes desolation standing where it does not belong, let the reader understand, which would be very helpful for us too. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. People have all sorts of opinions about this abomination Uh, And for that matter, anything to do with the Antichrist. And for some, they actually view the mosque on Temple Mount as that abomination. But in the context of what Jesus is saying here, it actually makes more sense to look at the historical context of what's going on at that time. And two particular things stand out. Uh, The first is the Roman Emperor, Emperor Caligula, who decreed a statue of himself be erected in the temple in about 40 AD. And as you can imagine, uh, that does not help Roman-Jewish relations. And it was certainly an abomination for the Jewish population. And so that's part of, in in the big picture of things, uh, what's going to stir up this discontent and that uprising that will happen in 66 AD. Uh, Or it could be a reference to the Romans setting up false worship in the temple in 70 AD as they took the city and before the temple was destroyed. Uh, There's a historian, uh, his name's Josephus, and he records a little bit of that event, and this is what he writes. Caesar, Titus, therefore led his staff inside the building and viewed the holy place of the sanctuary with its furnishings. Later that same day... As the Jewish partisans had fled into the city and flames were consuming the sanctuary itself and all its surroundings, the Romans brought their standards into the temple area 
and erected them opposite the east gate, sacrificing to them there, and with thunderous acclamation, hailed Titus as imperator. And during that period, many people in Jerusalem did flee, and for many Christians, they fled to a town called Pella. So Jesus is primarily talking about events in this generation, that period between the cross and the destruction of the temple. But following that, something in the some time in the future, Jesus will come again. A life of adoration and relief. You know, we made it. But for those who refuse to acknowledge Jesus, it's a moment of accountability. Now, in the end, we all pick sides. Uh, whether Jesus comes again, whether we die, uh, we all need to make a choice. Uh, choosing not to choose or procrastinating is a choice. In tennis, the line is in. In life, the fence is out. And so the short version of what Jesus is saying to the disciples is, there are terrible times ahead for you. But in the end, in the big picture of things, God wins. And that's going to impact how the disciples live in the present. So be on your guard. I've told you everything in advance. And part of telling them everything in advance is so they can be prepared and so they can be confident. Uh, Don't be surprised when you see everything going off script because this is the script that God has chosen for humanity and for his people. And that's helpful for us because when bad things happen, often our first reaction is, where is God? Uh, God is supposed to be delivering my best life now. And so when bad things happen, we feel it's a betrayal of trust. Or worse, it's proof that either God doesn't exist or that God doesn't care. And if he doesn't care about my health and my happiness, then why should I bother caring about my sin? In this passage, we're given a picture of the righteous and the unrighteous all suffering. No one's exempt from wars, earthquakes, famines. God doesn't promise to save us from the brokenness and the sinfulness of the present. What he does promise is to secure our future. And he does that through the cross. And actually, the present is going to be even harder if we are followers of Christ. Uh, For the disciples, they're going to be arrested and beaten and called to testify to Christ before governors and kings. Uh, For the disciples, you know, they live in a world where, you know, people get put to death and thrown to the lions just for the fun of it. Uh, That is what, that that is their fearful expectation of the future. Uh, For us, we're probably not going to get thrown to the lions, that's the good news. Uh, But there are plenty of other ways that we can feel that life is hard and persecuted as a Christian. Uh, It can be as simple as the belittling joke. It can be that feeling at work that being a Christian is going to hold you back in your career or a promotion. Uh, It's not quite the same league as getting thrown to the lions. But it can still make life feel pretty oppressive at times. And it can give us the temptation, that sense of, you know, it's just easier and safer to keep my head down 
and mind my own business. But that's not God's purpose for his people. The disciples need to brace themselves for the worst and at the same time, Jesus is calling them to push forward because the gospel must first be preached to all, new, to all nations. And the good news in this is that they're not alone. Do not worry beforehand about what to say. Just say whatever is given you at the time, for it is not you speaking, but the Holy Spirit. Now, this is a promise to the disciples, uh, not to us, but it is comforting to us because we do have the same spirit. Uh, Sometimes we would like the spirit to be more proactive and perhaps his presence more self-evident, but God has actually given us everything we need and perhaps a lot more than we recognise. I do like to cycle a bit. I'm not very good, but when you get out uh, on Swamp Roads, Jamboree, and you've got a bit of a tailwind, uh, you can feel quite good about yourself. You you feel like you're still doing all the work, and, uh, but what you don't realise and what you don't feel, of course, is you've got this wind that's pushing you along. And then, of course, you get to the other end and you turn around and that's quite a humbling moment as you discover it's not really you at all. Um, you know, it's just me getting pushed along. But, but I think there's something in that, in the sense of that's what the Holy Spirit does. Often, not so big and dramatic, not necessarily the most noticeable, but it's only when you turn and see your own weakness that you appreciate just how much the Spirit is doing. You know, we often feel inadequate when it comes to standing up for Christ. You know, we don't feel we've got the right words to say, and so, you know, perhaps it's just safer and better to say nothing. But you never know when God is going to use our modest efforts. Uh, The other week I was doing my first aid certificate, and we're doing CPR, and anyone has done, you know, been involved learning CPRs, you're kind of petrified of making things worse, right? You know, you're going to break ribs or a lung or something like that. And, uh, and the trader sort of made this helpful comment that he goes, they're already dead, so it can't get any worse. And I think there's something in that as we think about us talking about Jesus. You know, we obviously want to do our best. We want to speak in a way that's clear and gracious and winsome and compassionate. And we want to do everything in our power to equip ourselves to do that well. But we shouldn't let fear stop us. Uh, Nothing else has impacted this person to this point so far. And so who knows? Maybe this conversation is what God plans to use as a turning point. And if you don't know where to start, then start with the basics. Uh, Pray that God might give you the opportunity. Pray that you might see the opportunity, the words to say in that opportunity. Uh, Give your friends and neighbours and work colleagues every opportunity to know that you are a Christian. You know, very least, you know, weave into our conversation. What did you do on the weekend? And I think the third one is knock on the door and see who answers. Ask people about themselves. Ask about their, their background, what they like, don't like, what they believe about the world, why they believe it. And as we talk about, you know, their life, then that gives us opportunities to talk about, well, what we believe uh, or to ask questions and challenge what they believe. Or perhaps it's just taking the opportunity as we talk about the news of life. 
know, all sorts of different things are happening in the world all around us. We've all got all sorts of opinions. But how does being a Christian shape our opinion? You know, I've had a few conversations lately about the voice. And, you know, there's lots of opinions about the voice. But how does being a Christian inform my opinion? Now, that's sort of comment on, on how I will vote. But simply how being a Christian shapes that opinion. And sometimes you just got to risk it for the biscuit. Uh, we don't know what God is going to use. And perhaps in this conversation, he's going to do something glorious. And God certainly did that through the disciples. You know, through the, these 12 blokes in the middle of nowhere, God chooses for his, world, his word to go out to the whole world, to literally save billions, uh, including us. So the disciples should expect persecution. At the same time, they need to push forward and be prepared to give an account for the hope that they have in Christ. And then just to make things that little bit more interesting and harder, there are going to be people who claim to be Jesus returning and there are going to be people who claim to be speaking for Jesus but are actually leading people astray. And they are going to be really, really convincing. For false messiahs and false prophets will appear and and perform signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. You know, that was true when Jesus was alive. So Matthew records Jesus when he says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, Did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. It was true for Jesus. It continues to be true for the early church. As we read Paul's letters over and over again, he warns against false teachers. And so it's going to continue to be true for us. And my single biggest encouragement for us is to keep coming back to the Bible as our guiding star and to use God's word to test everything that we hear. You know, the temptation is to you know, try to read the tea leaves of our time as a sign. Or, you know, we feel that if I feel it deeply in my bones, that it must be the Holy Spirit. And that could be true but it might not be true. And simply because a door is open doesn't mean that God is calling us to walk through it. We need to keep coming back to God's word and those core principles. Does this love God as God's word teaches us to love God? Does this love others as God's word teaches us to love others? You know, this has not been an easy passage. And I think the, the longer you read it and the more time you spend with it, it'll probably get harder before it gets easier. But I hope it gives us some insight into how God was working in those years after Jesus died on the cross, rose and ascended and how he plans to work in the future. And in all of that, there's an example of how we are to live in the present. Uh, We might not be living in a time of distress or great tribulation. But how do we live and continue to honour Christ in whatever the circumstances 
he's placed us. And when things do get tough, uh, we need to keep reminding ourselves that God is in control and in the end, God will put everything right. And if we are in Christ, then we get the incredible privilege of sharing in that future. Amen.